Well, good evening, church family. I want to say a, a special thank you to uh, Corey Hughes and Justin Holland and his family and Gary and his wife Chandra and, and Stephen Renee back in the back um, for coming tonight and visiting and participating with us because this is one of the most sacred hours of our year every year when we reflect on the agony of the cross because you realize that we can't have the glory of Sunday until we have the agony of Friday. And we've got to go through the agony of Friday before we can appreciate the glory of Sunday. And so tonight will likely be, uh, in some ways, emotionally disturbing and, and spiritually concerning. But we know that Sunday is coming. But let's, let's take some time now to just ask the Lord if He would speak to us in a powerful way where our hearts are moved. Our, our, our minds are stimulated by the work of Jesus, but our hearts are moved to a place where we, we are repentant and we are thankful and we are worshipful. So let's, let's bow our heads and our hearts tonight. Father, in the name of Jesus, we, we approach Your throne tonight. And we, we've been anticipating Sunday, and we're looking forward to Sunday, Lord, as we celebrate resurrection. But in this hour, in these moments, Lord, we want to ask You to do something in us that we desperately need. Lord, some of us have been walking with Jesus for decades. Some of us have been walking with Him for years. Some of us have been walking with Him for months. But every one of us has the same need, Lord. We need to see our need for Your Son, our Savior, Jesus. Would You help us see our need for Him? And would You help us see His love for us? And help us to run to the cross that we might find our identity, we might find our worth and our value, and we might find our Savior there. Oh Lord, help us to remember what You want us to remember in the work of Your Son Jesus. It's in His name I pray. Amen. You know, the human memory is a, is a blessed gift from God. We, we can remember lots of things. We can remember good things. We can remember bad things. We can remember exciting events. We can also remember traumatic events. We have the capacity to remember completely useless things and information and, and very important things. I mean, I, I can remember distinctly being 12 years old, sitting in Andy and Jeff Carpenter's den, conquering Super Mario Brothers. I remember what it looked like outside. I remember where I was sitting. That is completely useless information, but I could tell you how many times I went over the bad guy. Bleep, 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 bleep. Got 67 extra men. Okay? And at the same time, I can't remember one sentence from the baccalaureate speech or the graduation speech the week that I graduated high school. We can remember so many things and we can forget so many things. And the Lord knows that about us because we are apt to remember the useless stuff and we are so apt and prone to forget that which is so important and should be so important to our lives. And so what 
what the Lord is doing in us celebrating communion. The Lord's Supper regularly is that we're called to remember. And for us celebrating Good Friday every year and Resurrection Sunday every year is we're calling ourselves to remember what the Lord has done so we won't forget. Because I will tell you, we're apt to forget. Can you not remember that in Judges, the people who grew up under their parents who had been delivered out of the wilderness didn't even know the story of the deliverance. Why? Because we're all apt to forget. So this is what I want to do. In the time that we have, I want to show you the passion of Christ. And then I want to show you the poison of sin. And then the peace that comes from forgiveness with God. So let's think about the passion of Jesus Christ. The first thing I want to do is just tell you about Jesus of Nazareth briefly. Jesus of Nazareth was a man. He was a unique man, undoubtedly, but he was a man. He was a man full of love. He was a man full of the Holy Spirit. He was full of mercy, full of truth, and he lived his life in that way every single day. He had a powerful ministry. If you were to follow Jesus around in his ministry, you would see that he healed sick people I read in Scripture today that everybody who brought their sick brothers and sisters and aunts and uncles, Jesus healed them. He healed the sick. He made the blind people to see. He made the lame to walk. He made the deaf to hear. He had a powerful ministry. He healed healed thousands of sick people, but He also raised dead people to life. Do you remember the time when Jesus was walking into a city? And there was a funeral procession that was coming outside of the city. And and the person who had died was a young man. And he was the son of a widow. And Jesus walks up essentially to the coffin and puts his hands on it and raises that young man to life and hands him over to his mother again. That's a powerful ministry. Jesus had a compassionate heart. He offered hope to people who were utterly hopeless. Think about the woman at the well woman who, who had had five husbands. And the woman that she was now with, I mean, the man that, he, that she was now with was not even her husband. And yet, Jesus offers hope to her and offers mercy to her such that she ultimately got saved because He was so gracious to her. And then He walks into a Pharisee's house who is all kind of high and mighty, and there's this woman of the city, a sinful woman who walks in And she goes down at Jesus' feet and she begins to cry and weep on his feet and she washes his feet with her hair and and then she puts ointment on, on his feet. And the Pharisees are looking at him like if he was really a prophet, if he was really a wise man, he would know who was washing his feet and he knew exactly who was washing his feet. And you know what? He was merciful. He was merciful. He had a compassionate heart on people. You know, back in those days, children didn't have much of a place in society. And yet, when the disciples tried to resist the children from coming to him, he said, wait a minute, let the little children come to me. Let them come. Why? Because he had a compassionate heart for children, for women, for the outcasts, for the hurting. Jesus was a wonderful man. He was a gracious man. He was a loving man. And he was a committed, committed man. He was loyal to his father. He prayed to his father every day. He spent time with him. He was loyal to his disciples. He was sacrificially loving toward his mother. He loved everyone around him. This was the man Jesus Christ. He loved Jews. He loved Gentiles. 
He loved Samaritans. He loved Pharisees. He loved everyone. He was indiscriminate in his affection for people. And yet, and yet, the world hated him. And specifically, the religious hated him. The people who were out for power hated him. The prideful hated him. The selfish hated him. And so Jesus, he heals a man, a blind man, Bartimaeus, because he cries out and says, Bartimaeus says, Lord, have mercy on me. Have mercy on me. And Jesus has mercy. He leaves that town Jericho and he goes to Jerusalem. And it's Sunday. And and all of these people whom Jesus has healed, and all of these people who are relatives to, pe- to people that Jesus has healed and helped and loved and fed, and, and all of these people who have heard of this, this quote-unquote king, they gather on this Sunday as Jesus is coming down from Jericho into the city of Jerusalem, and they start putting palm branches on the ground, and Jesus has gotten this donkey in order to fulfill Scripture, and Jesus comes riding into town on a donkey, and there's crying out, Hosanna in the highest! Hosanna, the King of the Jews! And they're thinking at this moment that He's about to take over Jerusalem, and He's about to take over the Roman Empire, and we want to be on His side. He rides on into Jerusalem, and then there's not really anything that happens. I mean, they were thinking they're about to coronate this king, and instead, Jesus rides on into town, and then he walks back to Bethany and spends the night. And the next day, he comes from Bethany into Jerusalem, and he looks over the city of Jerusalem. And because he's loving and because he's merciful, he says, Jerusalem. Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those that are sent to her. How often would I have gathered you like a hen gathers her brood under her wings? But you know what he says? But you would not have it. You would not have it. You resisted my love. You resisted my grace. You resisted my truth. And so he walks into the temple And it's Passover time. And so thousands and thousands of people have gathered in Jerusalem because they're about to slaughter animals. They're about to celebrate the feast. They're about to really get their celebration on in a big way. And Jesus walks into the holy temple and looks, and these money changers have tables set up, and they have pigeons and other animals, birds and lambs. And what are they doing? These temple officials are charging exorbitant prices for these small animals so that they can make a killing off of the people who have traveled hundreds of miles in order to get to the celebration. And what does Jesus do? His holy righteous anger wells up and he turns over the money changers table. He turns over the chairs and he says, you have made the house of God into a den of thieves. And they obviously get angry. And the the scripture says that they get fearful because they saw the power that was in him and they also saw what he could do to their operation. And so even though they had been conspiring about Jesus for a year and a half to two years now, they are bringing their conspiracy to a full force at this point on a Monday. On Tuesday, he comes back and he teaches spiritual truth to anybody who will listen. He goes into the temple and then he also preaches out at 
um, out at the Mount of Olives, and, and he's, doing, he's, he's, he's doing ministry to the Pharisees, he's doing ministry to the Sadducees, he's doing ministry to the crowds, and he's also doing ministry to disciples. If you can recall some of his teaching, some of the times they were asking, hey, um, about the resurrection there, Jesus, could you, could you explain to us about a, a lady who, who's married, and then her husband dies, and then she marries his brother, and he dies, and she marries his brother, and he dies, and you, y'all remember that story? Yeah, and he says, listen, you don't have any idea what you're talking about. You know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. He says, there's no marriage in heaven. Remember this? And then when they ask him about Caesar, and he, he ultimately just rebukes him, he says, listen, render to Caesar what is Caesar, and to God what belongs to God. And then one of the Pharisees comes up to him, a scribe actually, and he says, what's the greatest commandment? And Jesus says, the greatest commandment is this, the Lord our God The Lord is one. You shall love the Lord with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your strength, and with all of your mind. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now listen, the irony is that's exactly what Jesus had done for his entire life. And they're about ready to kill him for it. So he does his teaching. It is powerful. It is penetrating. It is loving. But it is truthful. And they hate him for it. And so he goes back to Bethany. And on Wednesday, they prepare for the Passover meal. On Wednesday, they get ready. The, the, the Jews, the Jewish leaders, the Pharisees, the scribes, the Sanhedrin, they plot how they're going to get at Jesus. And, and on Tuesday and Wednesday, Judas is conspiring with them. He agrees to, to betray Jesus because what we know about Judas is that he's greedy, that he loves money more than he loves God. He's suspicious more than he is worshipful. And so he agrees to betray Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. Thursday comes. Jesus tells his two closest disciples, Peter and John. He says, I want you to go into the town. I want you to, to, to go into this house. You're going to talk to a guy, and, and, and he's going to give you this upper room. And I want you to prepare the Passover meal that we can celebrate it. And that's exactly what Peter and John do. And so that night, Thursday evening, All of the disciples assemble in an upper room. And Jesus goes in there with them. And they've got all of the meal. The table is prepared. Everything is ready. In church, they celebrate that most sacred meal. And they remember the night that Jesus passed over the people of Israel because the blood covered over the doorpost. And so every part of the meal... The drinking of the wine, the partaking of the bitter herbs, the the bread, the whole nine yards symbolized what God had done for Israel in years past. And they themselves were remembering the faithfulness of God. And then once the meal was over, Jesus takes a basin of water and a towel and He gets down on His hands and feet and He goes disciple by disciple by disciple, and he washes their feet. And he demonstrates servanthood. In the midst of this, he's teaching them. He's showing them what real leadership is all about and what real love is all about. And he ultimately spends some time in prayer. But he tells them, he says, one of you is going to betray me. And you're going to deny me. And Peter says, I don't care what any of these other 11 guys do. I will never betray you. I will never deny you. And the scripture says that every one of the disciples said the same thing. 
Judas leaves. Then the eleven with Jesus depart from the upper room and they go to the garden of Gethsemane where Jesus had spent, spent plenty of time in prayer. And the other guys are going to pray, but he takes his, his beloved three, Peter, James, and John, and he asks them to walk with him. He says, I want you to watch with me. I want you to pray for me because the hour is at hand. And Jesus goes and he starts praying. And he's laboring in prayer because he, he's starting to feel the pressure and the weight of sin, the weight of wrath but about to come on him. And so he begins to say, Lord, Lord, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. And he goes back to Peter, James, and John to see if they're praying. And church, what are they doing? They're sleeping. Could you not watch with me? Could you not pray for me, guys? And he goes back and he prays some more. And he says, Lord, please remove this cup from me. The cup of wrath. The cup of separation. The cup of punishment. Could you remove it from me, Father? Nevertheless, not what I will, but what your will be done. And he goes back to the disciples. And what are they doing? They're sleeping. He wakes them up and he says, could you watch with me in prayer? And he goes back and prays one more time. And he sweats drops of blood. How in the world is that even possible? It's possible. It is literally, it's physiologically possible when you are undergoing stress of an incredible kind, an immeasurable kind. It's documented. He's sweating drops of blood because of the anxiety, because of the struggle and the turmoil that's going on in his heart. And he said, it's done. And about that time, Judas comes walking in with Jewish temple guards, temp temple guards and soldiers and troops, and they've got these torches and these lanterns, and they've got swords and clubs. And Judas had said to them, the one that I kiss is Jesus. And I've told you before that Judas stabs Jesus in the back with a kiss on the cheek. He kisses him, and they seize him. And Peter, being the quote-unquote loyal guy that he is, pulls out a sword and swipes the ear of the high priest's servant. The act of revenge, uh, bravado almost. Jesus has already told them what's going to happen. So Jesus restores the man's ear to himself. And as soon as they begin to take Jesus off and the disciples look at what's going on, they all run and hide. Every last one of them. Every last one of them that said, I will never desert you. I will never defect on you, Jesus. Every single one of them tucks tail and runs. And so they carry Jesus to the, what I would call the high priest emeritus, Annas. Annas is at his home, and he begins to, to ask Jesus questions. And and Jesus, as we know that he's going to be, is, is, is somewhat silent. But really what Annas is doing is he's stalling. He's waiting for Caiaphas, the high priest for this year, to, to get ready. And so Annas stands in judgment over Jesus and asks him questions like, are you the king of the Jews? And questions like that. 
And in the midst of this, the, the soldiers and the, the, the officers are beginning to scoff at Jesus. They're beginning to treat him brutally. And so they, they transfer him over to Caiaphas' Caiaphas's house. And he's right by the temple. And in the midst of the courtyard, um, Peter has found his way into the courtyard, and there's this kangaroo court that's going on. They, they have essentially... Uh, assembled a group of people who will bear witness against Jesus. They're, they're going to bear false witness. But in Jewish law, you had to have two witnesses to agree before you could exact some type of punishment. And so they line up all these people who are going to bear witness against Jesus, that he's a fraud, that he's a liar, that he's a crook, and all of these things. But the Scripture tells us they could not get two single people to agree. But Caiaphas... And the Sanhedrin ultimately assemble together. And as they're assembling together and they're going to interrogate Jesus and going to exercise their judgment on him, in the meantime, there are some people who are in cahoots with the leaders who see that Peter is in the crowd. Peter's a Galilean. He looks differently. He actually talks differently with a little bit of an accent. And they say, Peter, you're one of his. He said, "I, I don't even know him. No, no, you're really one of his. You're a follower of him. You're a Galilean. He says, I don't know what you're talking about. And then third, a servant girl says, no, I've seen you with him. You are one of his. And he curses at them and says, I don't know the man. Jesus and Peter lock eyes. Can you imagine the conviction? Can you imagine the guilt? Well, Jesus is asked explicitly, are you the king of the Jews? And in so many words, Jesus essentially says, I am. I, I am. And you will see the Son come back with great power and with great authority from the heavens. And the, the, the high priest tears open his, his clothes as, as if Jesus has blasphemed God. He tears open his clothes and he says, what further need do we need of any witnesses? Let's kill him. And so all of the people gather together and it's late Thursday night on into Friday morning and they essentially go over to the Roman praetorium. It's where Pilate, the Roman governor, lives. And the Roman governor is, I'm sure, woken up and he his early Friday morning and they deliver him over to uh to Pilate, and they say, he has violated the law, he declares himself to be a king, he's in, he, he's in rebellion against Rome, he's in rebellion against Israel, you've got to deal with him. You've got to deal with him right now, right here. And Pilate essentially interrogates Jesus. And Jesus doesn't have anything to say. And, and Pilate sees that Jesus is a holy man. He sees that he's a, he's a man with, with some some unique abilities, some un- a unique persona about him. And Pilate doesn't want to persecute Jesus. Pilate certainly doesn't want to kill Jesus. But they keep putting the pressure on Pilate. And they say, if you're truly a ruler of, of Caesar's, then you're going to have to do something with this man because he's in rebellion against Caesar and says that he's even higher than Caesar is. Well, now, the one thing that Pilate can't have, he can't have anybody taking a trip back to Rome and saying somehow that Pilate is allowing someone who says they have more power than Caesar to exist. 
And so what, what Pilate does and kind of hopes that it'll appease everyone is he takes the Roman centurion and Roman troops and he has Jesus flogged, scourged. And you guys have probably all studied what that is, but essentially they, they would tie Jesus' hands to a post. They would take a, a leather whip, probably had three or four different straps on it, and it had glass and animal bones grafted into the leather whip, and they would um, take the whip, and they would, they would completely strip him, and then they would just lash the whip over the body, one after one after one after one, until they were satisfied with the beating. Now, undoubtedly, Jesus experienced an excruciating scourging. But Pilate's aim was maybe that'll be sufficient for them. And so he ushers Jesus back over into the praetorium. And the high priest and the Sanhedrin have gathered a lot of the Israelites in the city and, and, and city vill- uh, uh, people who have come into the city for Passover, and they're all in the praetorium. It's this massive crowd, and he, he presents Jesus to him, and he says, listen, it's an, it's an custom for me to release one of your people around this time. You want me to release Barabbas to you, or do you want me to release Jesus? Barabbas is a thief. He's a murderer in the insurrection. He's a bad dude. Or do you want me to release this guy who's healed your sick and raised your dead and unblinded the blind and made the lame to walk and the deaf to hear. Who do you want me to take? And and they say, we want Barabbas. And essentially, this is what they all cry. Crucify Him! Crucify Him! And folks, surely in that crowd that day, there were some who had been impacted by Jesus' ministry. Surely there were some who had had a brother who got healed from leprosy. Surely there was one who had a sister who had gotten healed from some deep, dark illness and sickness. Surely there were some who had experienced the amazing feeding of the 5,000 on that hillside that day. Surely there were those whose lives had been touched by the ministry of Jesus. But as they gathered together underneath the authority of the religious leaders of that day, they say, crucify Him. And so the Roman soldiers mock him, they scoff him, they, they strip him again, they put, a, they put a robe on him, they twist a crown of thorns over his head, they give him this reed and make him hold it, and here he is, no clothes on, with nothing but a robe draped over him and a crown of thorns, and they bow down before Jesus, who is bloody, who is... Uh, in the, in the condition of great shame, and they say, Hail, King of the Jews! Hail, King of the Jews! Make fun of Him and mock Him and ridicule Him. And then they give Him His cross and they make Him march up toward the north gate of the city until He can't carry His cross anymore. And they get a guy who's walking through on the north side of the city, Simon of Cyrene, And they say, you carry the cross the rest of the way. And they get up to the cross. They get up to Golgotha, the place of the skull. And they put Jesus down on top of the cross. And they nail His left hand to the cross. They nail His right hand 
to the cross. They nail His feet to the cross. And then they erect the cross into its position. And there are two thieves to His right, one to His right and one to His left. And at this point, Roman soldiers are there. Jewish leaders are there. Some of Jesus' followers are straggling behind at a distance to look and see their Savior, their leader, their rabbi being treated as if He is not even a human. And it's around 9 a.m. And at 9 a.m., Jesus begins to experience the, the cross work within the cross work. But as the soldiers are scoffing at Him, He looks down at, at them and He says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He continues to be crucified. And as He looks out at the rest of the crowd, there's a thief who says, Hey, If you're really the king, then get down off the cross. And while you're at it, get me off too. He's just scoffing. But the other thief says, Will you remember me in glory? And Jesus looks over at him and says, Today, today, you will be with me in paradise. And then he looks down at his mom, Mary, And John is to her side and he says, Behold your son. And then he says to John, Behold your mother. In other words, I've loved her my whole life. I'm leaving. You take care of her now. It gets to be noon. And at noon, something miraculous happens. Darkness goes over all the land. We're not talking about it becomes overcast. We're not talking about that it becomes a gray day. It is jet black dark in the sky. And miracles begin to happen at this point. The Scripture tells us that that things happen on Golgotha and then outside of Jerusalem, inside of Jerusalem, when it becomes dark. But on the cross... Jesus is still bearing the weight of human sin, but at this moment, when it becomes dark, and we know that in Scripture that darkness represents judgment. Darkness represents represents evil. Darkness represents punishment. Darkness represents hell, essentially. And so it becomes dark on the cross at noon, from noon to 3 o'clock. And it's at that time when Jesus cries out, not to Mary, not to the guy on the side of the cross, not to the Roman centurions, but He cries out to God and says, My God, my God, why have You forsaken Me? There's no answer. The Father doesn't open up the heavens and say, Son, I love you. It's just got to be this way right now. He doesn't say, Just hang on a little bit longer, Son. Listen, He cries out, Why have you forsaken me? Because God has utterly forsaken His Son. He has turned His back on His own eternal beloved Son who have been close from eternity past. They have been this close in a loving, gracious, wonderful, intimate relationship of Father to Son. But at this moment, when Jesus needs His Father the most, He turns His back on Him.
You know, when we ask the question, why did the Father do that? Why did the Father forsake His Son? You know the answer? It's so that about 2,000 years ago, in a place in Oxford, Alabama, there's a group of sinners who would never have to know what it means to be forsaken by God. Why have you forsaken me? So sinners who put their faith in Jesus will never be abandoned by a holy and righteous God. And so, he ultimately says, I thirst. He then says, once it's about to be finished, as he's bearing the weight of all of human sin, he says, it is finished. And he cried his last, and he breathed out, and it was over. Well, the Romans had been given the charge to go break the legs of all the guys so that they would expedite the death of all the guys who were being crucified so they could get the bodies down before Sabbath because the, the Jewish leaders didn't want to break Sabbath law. And so when they get up to Jesus to break his legs, they see that he's already dead. And so one of the centurions takes a spear and goes right into the side of Jesus and pulls it out and blood and water gush out, indicating that this man is in fact dead. They take him down off of the cross and a secret follower of Jesus, a wealthy man named Joseph of Arimathea, had gone to Pilate and asked Pilate, can I have the body of Jesus so that I can bury him in a tomb that I have purchased? It's right by Golgotha. And Pilate grants that request. And so Joseph of Arimathea and some others take Jesus to this tomb and they bury him. They prepare his body. That's on Friday night. In the meantime, rocks are split open. The veil in the temple that hangs like over 60 feet tall tore from top to bottom. The earth literally quakes. The dead who are in tombs are risen from the dead. Miracles are happening left and right. God is doing something amazing here. What He's doing is ushering in a new era. He's ushering in a new covenant. He's ushering in a new way to relate to God. The interesting, the ironic thing is that people are at the temple slaughtering animals and offering up sacrifices when in fact the once for all sacrifice for sins was being made right outside of town. Saturday comes. And surely the Jewish leaders are feeling celebration. We finally got rid of them. And surely Pilate is feeling some, some relief. Oh, I'm glad that's finally over. And the disciples and the followers of Jesus are no doubt feeling guilt, grief, loneliness, emotional turmoil, and spiritual failure. No doubt. And I think that's where we want to hang right now. Let's just hang here for a moment. That's the passion of Christ minus the Sunday resurrection. And we know that Sunday's coming. But church, 
We see the passion of Christ, and inside the passion of Christ, we see the poison of human sin. Do we not? Do we not see arrogance and pride when the disciples say, we'll never leave you, we'll never desert you, we'll always stick with you. We see the fear and the cowardice at the same time when pressure is brought on on those same disciples and they run like little kids who have just seen a monster. We see arrogance and pride. We see fear and cowardice. We see brutality. We see callousness toward the Lord Jesus Christ who is the King and Lord of glory. We see a a self-righteous self-sovereignty in Annas We see a self-righteous, self-sovereignty in Caiaphas, and we see a self-preserving spirit in Pilate who sees Jesus really for who He is, but he's unwilling to give up his own sovereignty and his own power in exchange to worship Jesus Christ because he knows what it's going to cost him if he gives up his life to follow this Savior. And so here he is. He is adamant in his sin against this Jesus whom he sees as a holy man. We see the crowd calloused. We see the crowd hateful and vengeful. We see these people who are angry and it's not righteous anger, it's unrighteous anger. Why? Because Jesus is obviously not the king that they wanted to see coronated on Sunday of last week. Church, friends, brothers and sisters, if we analyze the poison of sin inside the passion of Christ, we would see a laundry list not of a bunch of first century Jews' sins, and not just a group of hard-hearted, callous Roman soldiers and some some power-hungry leaders. You know what we see? We see ourselves. We see pride. We see boastful words without faithful action. We see hard-heartedness. We see self-sovereignty. If we look really close at the Passion Week of Jesus Christ, we can see a little bit of ourselves in Peter and James and John, and we can see a little bit of ourselves in the and the Roman soldiers. We can see a little bit of ourselves in Judas Iscariot. We can see a little bit of ourselves in Caiaphas and Annas and Pilate. We can see a little bit of ourselves in the crowd. It's the poison of human sin. Because you know, Jesus said that for anybody who feeds and clothes and cares for the least of these, He's also cared for me. But whoever rejects me, Whoever rejects any of these, he's also rejected me. I want to tell you, we have in our hearts the universality of human sin. The Scripture says that all have sinned. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All have gone astray. We like sheep have gone astray. Church, what I want to do right now is I want to ask you if you would to bow your head. I'd like to ask you to close your eyes if you're willing. I just want to ask you right now, can you confess before God that you have the poison of sin? 
Do you have any sin in your heart and in your life that you know you're guilty of? And you know that when Jesus went to the cross and He was bearing the weight of His Father's righteous wrath and punishment against sin, that yours is included in that. Right now, can you realize that the cross work was for you? It wasn't for just for those people out there. It wasn't for your rowdy neighbors out there. It wasn't just simply for the people who live in Africa or some other continent who are way, quote-unquote, worse people than you. The cross was for you because you are a sinner and sin requires punishment. Sin requires judgment. Sin requires separation. Would you be willing right now to confess your sins? That you're guilty. That you deserve what Jesus endured. And would you be willing right now to ask God to forgive you of all unconfessed sin in your life? Would you be willing to thank Him right now For the love of Jesus Christ who poured out His life, who poured out His soul, who poured out His body for you at Golgotha. We cannot end with the poison of sin. We must end with what the cross work of Jesus accomplished. So with your heads bowed and your eyes closed, let me offer you the peace of forgiveness. The Apostle Paul says, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. For while we were weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. That's me, and that's you. We're the ungodly. And Christ died for us. God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved. We may be saved by Him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son. Much more, now that we're reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. More than that, we rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. We've received peace. Church, I want you to know right now, as you're meditating on the cross work of Jesus for your soul and for your life, that if you have put your faith in Jesus, you are justified before God. God has looked down on you and He has declared you righteous, righteous, righteous. Why? Because He declared His Son unrighteous on the cross. If you've put your faith in Jesus, you have peace with God. You don't have to earn anything with Him. 
You don't have to deserve anything with Him. You don't have to go out and be as good as you possibly can be and love as many people as you possibly can love in order to earn the favor of God. No, you don't have to do that. You already have peace with Him because of what Jesus has done on your behalf. And if you put your faith in Jesus, you will never, ever, ever experience God's wrath. Listen to me. You will never, ever, ever experience God's wrath. Because Jesus expended all of God's wrath on Himself in your place. And if you've put your faith in Jesus, you will always experience the love of God. You will always experience the love of God God's love will come to you in the fullness of the Holy Spirit. God's love will come to you in the warmth of the fellowship of the saints. God's love will come to you as He speaks directly to your heart as you open up the Gospels and begin to read them. God's love will come to you in a thousand different ways, but God's love will always come to you and His wrath will never come to you because His wrath was expended on His Son so that His love could be expended on you. Praise His name. We're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper right now in order to truly remember the cross work of Jesus. If you're a Christian and have repented of all your sins that you know of, then take communion with thankfulness to Jesus. Take communion with excitement about what He has done for you at the cross. If you're not a Christian but you you see your need for Jesus and you want to believe in Him, then believe in Him right now. Cry out to Jesus right now and say, Jesus, I believe in what you did. I believe you took my sins. And I believe that on Sunday you rose from the dead. And then take communion for the very first time as a believer. After we sing a song, we're going to have three tables prepared for communion. You can come up to any of the three. Our elders are going to be distributing the elements and leading you in this sacred meal. And as you come up, you come up as a family. If your children are not Christians yet and they're not ready, bring them up with you if you like and they can watch you celebrate communion. Anybody who's a Christian and anyone who's repented of their sins can right now celebrate the Lord's Supper that He instituted on the night that He was betrayed like sinners like you and I are. Let's enjoy this precious time together. We're going to sing a song to prepare our hearts, and then we're going to feast together as a faith family. Let's enjoy this together.